0: Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. The truth
1: is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. You
0: must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. i tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Monday, July 25th, 2022, the 551st day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is is by becoming a paid subscriber on the Substack. I'm your com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. You will be supporting this show and me and the work I do. If you can't do it, if you don't want to do it, the show goes up two days later on normal podcast platforms and on Rumble. But if you can do it and you like the show and you want to support it, Subscribing to the Substack is the best way to do that. You will also get all of the writing immediately upon its release, even if I delay it with a paywall for everyone else. So I hope you all had a great weekend and let's get started. And of course, we must start with the brand new pandemic. Or not quite a pandemic, just a global health emergency as defined, not by the WHO, by the WHO director, Tedros Adhanom
1: Ghebreyesus. For all of these reasons, I have decided that the global monkeypox outbreak represents a public health emergency of international concern.
0: I have decided... That the monkeypox outbreak represents a public health emergency of international concern. Now, we're being told that monkeypox is spreading within the gay community and that it is sexually transmitted. Or at least if not sexually transmitted by close physical contact, let's say. But it basically sounds like we're just getting the AIDS playbook over again. But since you don't want to indirectly be responsible for killing someone's gay grandmother, you need to mask up. It was reported over the weekend that Dr. Tedros didn't simply declare the public health emergency of international concern. He actually there was a vote in the WHO and he acted as the tiebreaker. Before he acted and broke the tie, nine members of the expert committee were against the designation and six were in favor of it. So the vote was nine to six against this recommendation. And Tedros broke that nine to six tie by himself deciding that it actually was a public health emergency of international concern. You didn't realize it, but his vote is worth four. So it turns out that the side in favor of declaring the public health emergency won 10 to 9. They hit a four pointer at the buzzer. Tedros said. Although I am declaring a public health emergency of international concern, for the moment, this is an outbreak that is concentrated among men who have sex with men, especially those with multiple sexual partners, Tedros said. So it doesn't sound like something that can be transferred in any area you might need a mask. But since masks are security blankets for absolute morons, I can imagine we will see an increase in mask use, especially because they're trying to sell it to us for coronavirus still as well. This is Nazi Dr. Anthony Fauci
1: just today. Or a, or a, or a county, a state or a city that has a very high level of dynamic of viral circulation. The CDC would recommend strongly that you wear a mask in a congregate indoor setting. And that would include schools, places of work, uh, anything that brings people together in a closed uh, environment. That is good public health practice. So wearing masks is a good public
0: health practice in indoor congregate settings. We've been hearing this for over two years now, and there is still absolutely no proof anywhere that masks do work, that they can work or that they ever have worked anywhere is either scared of the virus, has not already gotten the virus or has not been vaccinated. People who aren't scared of the virus are not going to wear masks because they know it's moronic and they know the virus isn't that big of a deal. People who have already gotten the virus have immune protection from the virus and the coronavirus gets weaker. It is weaker. It doesn't matter how many times they say it's more transmissible to sound, to make it sound like it's more dangerous. The virus is weaker for the unvaccinated. So there is even a lower threat than there was two years ago. And we're being told to take this health mitigation step That we know doesn't work. Everybody else has been vaccinated for the coronavirus. The vaccines, we're told, are very safe and effective. So if that's true, why aren't those people just relying on their vaccines? Of course, we know none of it's true. But that doesn't stop the Nazi doctor because they must have studied this or focus grouped it and figured out that there still is a population dumb
1: enough to go for all of this two and a half years later, that anywhere from 50 to 60% of the transmission occur from someone without symptoms, either someone who never will get symptoms or someone who is in the pre-symptomatic stage. Had we known that then, the insidious nature of spread in the community would have been much more of an alarm and there would have been much, much more stringent Uh, restrictions in the sense of very, very heavy, encouraging people to wear masks, physical distancing or what have you. So we're doing the
0: old asymptomatic spread thing again. Now it's 50 or 60 percent or maybe even 70 of the spread comes from asymptomatic individuals. Now, if you recall, a few months into the very deadly pandemic in 2020, the epidemiologist Maria Van Kerkhove admitted that asymptomatic spread has not been proven. They've not proven asymptomatic spread. And there are plenty of doctors and scientists and experts that say that asymptomatic spread does not happen and is not possible. And this is Dr. Paul Alexander writing for the Brownstone Institute. The headline, more than 150 comparative studies and articles on mask ineffectiveness and harms. And he put this out seven months ago, last December. It is not unreasonable to conclude that surgical and cloth masks used as they are currently being used without other forms of PPE protection have no impact on controlling the transmission of COVID-19 virus. Current evidence implies that face masks can actually be harmful. The body of evidence indicates that face masks are largely ineffective. My focus is on COVID face masks and the prevailing science that we have had for nearly 20 years. Yet I wish to address this mask topic at a 50,000-foot level on the lockdown restrictive policies in general. I build on the backs of the fine work done by Gupta, Kulldorff, and Bhattacharya on the Great Barrington Declaration and similar impetus from Dr. Dr. Scott Atlas, who, like myself, was a strong proponent for a focused type of protection that was based on an age-risk stratified approach. Because we saw very early on that the lockdowns were the single greatest mistake in public health history. We knew the history and knew they would not work. We also knew very early of COVID's risk stratification. Sadly, our children will bear the catastrophic consequences and not just educationally of the deeply flawed school closure policy for decades to come particularly our minority children who were least able to afford this. Many are still pressured to wear masks and punished for not doing so. I present the masking body of evidence below, and he has 167 studies and pieces of evidence that masks don't work comprised of comparative effectiveness research, as well as related evidence and high level reporting to date, The evidence has been stable and clear that masks do not work to control the virus and they can be harmful, especially to children. And I encourage all of you to find this and use it as a resource. Save it wherever you save this sort of thing. Masks don't work. The people pushing them on society and most specifically on children are lying and they are malicious. It doesn't matter what incentives they're responding to. It doesn't even matter if they believe they're acting in good faith at this point. There is absolutely no evidence anywhere that masks do anything. They are a social signal and nothing more. Wait for a few weeks and let's see if we begin hearing about how everyone should mask up in solidarity with the gay community over monkeypox. If that happens, everyone should be able to see pretty clearly that a false reality has been opened right in front of us. If people go along with that, that is utterly insane. So we will see if they go that far. Now, let's get back to Tedros for a moment. He decided that there was a public health emergency of international concern. Now, a month or so ago, we were talking about the future framework. The WHO was considering a new agreement that would bind the countries of the world to allow the WHO to instruct them on what policies must be implemented in the countries of the world to deal with the public health emergency of international concern. They would be able to dictate things like lockdowns and quarantines and mask wearing and vaccine mandates, all the things that they tried to get us to do willingly, then tried to shame us into doing, and then eventually, for some of them, tried to force us into doing. The WHO would just dictate that and all the countries around the world would just have to accept it. That was the plan. Now, that plan has been tabled for a while, but that was the plan. So if we were in that state of being right now, if that had passed, this declaration by the WHO would mean that the United States has to respond to what the WHO recommends. And then, of course, the citizens have to obey or they'll be called domestic terrorists. Now, since that didn't happen, our government is just going ahead and declaring their own public health emergency for monkeypox. Or I should say they are considering it. Within the last few weeks, they have considered a public health emergency for abortion, which makes absolutely no sense. Last week, Karine Jean-Pierre was answering questions about this in the White House briefing room, and she said that the public health emergency for abortion wouldn't unlock enough money and enough powers, so they were going to continue to look at it. She talks about how they might declare a national emergency for climate change because that would unlock more money and different powers. Now they have a new national emergency that they can consider a pandemic of monkeypox ahead. Maybe I wonder how much money and how much power that national emergency can unlock. It's like they're trying to level up in a video game where you win once you completely destroy America and all its people. But let's have a little refresher on Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus since he has taken it upon himself to break the nine to six tie and declare a public health emergency of international concern. You see, he's got a bit of a spotty past before he was declared the decider-in-chief of the WHO. And this is from Fox News back on March 27th, 2020. WHO chief's questionable past comes into focus following coronavirus response. The head of the World Health Organization in charge of making life or death decisions on a grand scale has been accused of covering up cholera epidemics, supporting a terrorist organization and inflating his resume to claim he conquered malaria and HIV. Well, you know who else claims to have conquered malaria and HIV? Ah, Bill Gates. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyes' campaign to rewrite his questionable past has some wondering whether he is the right fit to lead the global agency through the coronavirus pandemic. Oh, some are wondering. Tedros is the second to last person who should be heading the World Health Organization at this time. Foreign affairs expert Gordon Chang told Fox News the last person is Xi Jinping. The Ethiopian official who was elected to lead the WHO in 2017 has been accused of cozying up to countries like China that have pledged millions of dollars to the agency. Last week, Tedros applauded Xi for his efforts to contain and control the novel coronavirus that is widely thought to have originated in a Wuhan, China seafood market. And I'm going to skip down a bit because we don't need to rehearse all of the COVID narrative. Tedros, the first African pick to lead the International Health Agency, has been under a microscope for years, and his rise to power hasn't been an easy one. He landed his current job after three rounds of secret ballot voting, where he knocked out Dr. Sonia Nishtar of Pakistan and Dr. David Nabarro of Britain. Just ahead of the vote, Tedros was accused of covering up three cholera epidemics in Ethiopia when he was health minister. Tedros denied the allegations and claimed they were made as part of a last minute smear campaign against him. At the time, Lawrence Gostin, the director of the O'Neill Institute for National and Global Health Law, called out Ethiopia's long history of denying cholera outbreaks, even as they were going through them, and said some of those outbreaks took place on Tedros's watch. Gostin said he went public with his concerns because he feared that with Tedros at the helm of the WHO, the agency might lose its legitimacy. In an interview with the New York Times, Ted Rose denied covering up cholera outbreaks in 2006, 2009, and 2011 and said the cases of suspected cholera were actually cases of acute watery diarrhea that occurred in remote areas of the country where testing is difficult. The Guardian and The Washington Post have both reported that unnamed Ethiopian officials were putting pressure on aid agencies to stop using the word cholera and to not report the number of people affected by it during earlier outbreaks. Now, by the way, this stuff can go both ways. If you think about this as a parallel to coronavirus, it changes how you would view someone denying the presence of a public health outbreak. So it's always important to consider multiple possibilities and not accept the thing you're reading as the truth. Born in 1865, Asmara, which became Eritrea's capital after its independence from Ethiopia in 1991, Tedros grew up in northern Ethiopia's Tigray region. After his younger brother died from the measles, he vowed to push for universal health coverage. So you got that? He's a hero. He wanted universal health coverage, just like every communist and socialist has always said. Tedros became a member of the Tigray People's Liberation Front, which began a protracted rebellion against the military government and was crucial in the 1991 overthrow of Mengistu Haile Meriam, Ethiopia's Marxist dictator. The victory resulted in swapping out a Amhara dominated government with one led by Tigray leaders, which led to more than a decade of conflict. Journalist Abebe Gelaw claims Tedros was one of the top three members of the TPLF and that the party is ultimately responsible for all the corruption, killings, torture, mass detention, land grab, or displacement, he wrote in the Ethiopian Registrar. The U.S. State Department has categorized TPLF as a terrorist organization due to its violent activities before it became part of the ruling coalition and the government of Ethiopia in May 1991. Gelaw has also accused Tedros of using a U.S.-based lobbying firm to inflate his resume. He is hyping up his dubious successes, conquered malaria, destroyed HIV, reduced infant mortality, built thousands and thousands of clinics, Gelaw wrote, adding, They never talk about the reality behind those exaggerated figures. Now, what is the Tigray People's Liberation Front? According to Wikipedia, which, by the way, you're free not to trust. This is just some reference of what the central narrative is. The TPLF is a left wing ethnic nationalist paramilitary group, banned political party, former ruling party of Ethiopia and designated as a terrorist organization by the Ethiopian government. Left-wing ethnic nationalists, you don't say. So that, my friends, is tiebreaker Tedros. And I wish you all the best of luck on not getting monkeypox, especially those of you in the gay community, because you're apparently the only ones who can get it. But also, kind of everybody else, because if you're not a biologist, then there's no way for you to know if you're a man, and there's no way for you to know whether or not the person you're having sex with is a man. I'm surprised that they haven't replaced the word man in this context with person who can get monkeypox by having sex with another person who can get monkeypox. That's a lot more sensitive. I really think that they should. Change to that. Unless we're going to constantly need to get a biologist involved. And if you listen to Friday's episode, well, hey, you can't trust every biologist. So let's venture further into the world of communist insanity. The New York Times published an article on Saturday highlighting the new trend of cannibalism in literature and television and film. And initially, publishers and producers were hesitant to cover this sort of subject matter. But it turns out they realized that audiences were just eating it up. So they went ahead and continued on. They have an interesting quote in here from a man named Bill Shutt, who authored a book called Cannibalism, A Perfect Natural History. And he says, When you take something that is so horrible and put it through this lens of fictionalization, we get charged up about it, but we know we're safe. And if you're the sort of, you know, lunatic who might think that this trend suggests some sort of coordination, some sort of public push to change the Public's understanding of cannibalism and not just everybody suddenly becoming fascinated with eating their neighbors, then there's a couple things you might think. You might think, well, cannibalism historically has been something that different societies have practiced, something that different pagan religions have made part of their belief system and part of their ritual practice. And perhaps, like many ancient practices, they have been passed down through the generations in some form, whether it's in secret societies or primitive offshoot cultures existing in something of a different timeline without the same technology. And that maybe some of that might have seeped into more mainstream cultures. And we are on the verge in the next few weeks or few months or maybe even few years of public disclosures about cannibalistic practices within societies that we might feel somehow adjacent to that might normally scare the hell out of us. But maybe we're conditioned to accept it by that point, And maybe that is the coordination at work here. That's possible. It's possible. But I think something else might be at play as well. And it was kind of well-defined in the way he just described it. It allows you to experience the emotionality of what you're being shown, but you still feel safe because it's fictionalized. It's not happening in your real world. So you don't actually have to experience what it would be like to know that there are people around who might very well want to eat you. Or if not you, then at least they would find some people to eat. Now, I was just on Sean Morgan's show, Making Sense of the Madness, that'll be out later this evening. And we discussed this article and I said it's equally possible that stuff like this, this trend, this push towards some level of public understanding and acceptance of cannibalism could just be more of the continued degradation of society and of our moral views about things like this which we are normally conditioned and normally understand to be reprehensible. And they've done that on a whole bunch of levels. Some of it's sci-fi, like the way they treat AI on a show like Devs, where there's this supercomputer and this omniscient algorithm that basically knows all of the data in the world and can show you the past and predict the future or the AI like we see in Westworld, where... The AI robots are almost human, except they're actually in many ways superhuman. And the humans that interact with them simply have to accept their fate. And it's actually their role as humans to see these robots as also human with the ability to experience emotions and experience pain. And because they're able to do that, we have a moral responsibility to be nice to them. Or we have a show like The Boys on Amazon, which, by the way, I find fantastically entertaining and interesting politically, although I am definitely not saying I align with the politics of the show. I can't even say I entirely understand the politics of the show. I don't know exactly where the showrunners and the writers would come down But there are some hints. Now, I don't want to fill this with spoilers or anything, but part of the show is centered around the idea that there is a pharmaceutical company that can inject humans with a substance that can make them superhuman and that these superhumans would eventually be in the military. Now, are we going to see any of this stuff in real life? Are we going to see superhumans? Are we going to see superhuman AI or omniscient algorithms or human-ish robots that we have a moral responsibility to? I don't know, man. I don't know what the future is going to be like. I do know that the narrative in these shows accepts all of this science in some way as an inevitability. And we can even go back to movies like Minority Report, and we can go even look at old sci-fi. A lot of the stuff people used to write about comes into being in the real world sometime in the future. It's not because these guys make something up and then science follows that, although maybe it is sometimes. Generally, it's just that people take seriously some of these ideas when scientists begin talking about them and they look to follow these ideas out to their logical conclusions and imagine how the world would be in those circumstances. I had a script years ago that went around to a couple of major production companies and it was about how climate change was basically an attack by the earth on the people To restore the Earth's equilibrium and people basically fought back by destroying all of nature and essentially simulating it. And the society was completely walled, obviously, to guard them from the rising sea levels that surely were going to follow all of the projections. And there was virtually no place on the Earth to be safe except inside of these walled societies but that there were offshoot groups outside of the walls of these societies trying to operate in harmony with nature. And as they did that, the planet began to get healthier and then try to rid itself of the parasites within the walled society. Once again, that was the general premise. Now, nobody told me to write that. Nobody told me to write that because it would enhance their climate narrative if the good and evil sides were just operated in a certain way. I just paid attention in the news and thought about stories that could occur in the future if certain things happened the way the stories were headed. So I want to be clear that I don't necessarily blame the writers for trying to create stories that allow people to understand why some things in our culture throughout history might be particularly horrifying and particularly morally reprehensible. That is one of the ways we learn about our world. It's through stories. But when there are a series of similar themes being propelled into the mainstream through publishers and production companies and then through media, that is the place where you might be able to suggest some sort of coordination. And it's not always in entertainment over the past, I don't know, five or 10 years, there has been a movement to normalize in some way pedophilia as there's been a movement to normalize all sorts of other deviant sexual practices. And I'm not talking about every alternative sexual practice. All right. I am pretty libertarian when it comes to all that. I have my ideas about what I think makes the best relationships and the best cultures, but I don't think that I have a the right to control how other people conduct themselves. I don't believe it's my responsibility to demand conformity from other people based on my morality, but even that ventured into the realm of entertainment as well. There was a section of Lars von Trier's Nymphomaniac that dealt with that subject explicitly. My concern with this sort of stuff is that people do experience these ideas and feel safe about these ideas because they've experienced them in a fictionalized setting, which in some way convinces them that these problems don't really exist. They're not real world things and unwittingly people become biased Toward believing that these things aren't threats because we all kind of understand them and we all kind of know how to navigate them to some extent because we watched Minority Report or Westworld or Devs or The Boys or any of these cannibal shows. I guess the one is called Yellow Jackets. And that's not exactly where we want to be because we can see things like Minority Report pre-crime, right? not necessarily thought crime. They know for a fact that you will go and commit a crime. So they're allowed to arrest you in advance. We have a society that is moving toward that right now. We read Fahrenheit 451 or we watch the movie and we learn about book burning, a program specifically geared toward burning all books by government. And we think, oh, that's what book burning looks like. And The Nazis burned books, but we don't see that Fahrenheit 451 thing happening. And we're not Nazis, even though we're supporting them in Ukraine. So all the censorship now is not that thing. Therefore, it's not the bad thing because we understand what the bad thing is. We can't see the bad thing right now. So therefore, it's not happening. And the censorship that's happening now is not bad. The censorship that's happening now is about disinformation. You see, in Fahrenheit 451, they wanted to burn all the books. Well, hey, Kami, why did they want to do that? Did they think that all the books were dangerous disinformation? Yeah, that's still the reason. So the problem is basically designating all sorts of ideas as dangerous information and making sure that people can't ever think about those subjects because who knows what might happen then? So when I see this stuff, I don't necessarily presume that this is preempting some public disclosure, but regardless of that, it is making us more tolerant and more accepting of things that we should not be tolerant and accepting of. And when we see these trends emerge and we see these trends essentially advertised as they were in the New York Times... It's worth paying attention to that, regardless of what the substance of the actual artwork or commercial artwork truly is. I would never suggest that writers should consider certain subjects too taboo or too off limits to explore. I think that on balance, it's probably good and necessary that there are people to explore those ideas so that we can at least wrestle with them. But I don't like it when it seems like a top-down effort to condition the public, to have people believe that things like this could never happen. And if we do see them happening, we shouldn't worry all that much about it. Now, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you'll know that many times over the last year and a half, I have talked about other countries around the world That seem to be in very similar situations involving many of the same individuals and organizations influencing those situations parallels to what's happening here, just happening on slightly different timelines. And you'll know that one of the countries I've been focused on is Myanmar, who had a fraudulent election in 2020 that declared the winner to be a woman named Aung San Suu Kyi, who is an ally of the Clintons and the Obamas and, of course, George Soros. Last year, the military deposed Suu Kyi. The military deposing her is referred to as the junta. And not only did they depose and imprison Suu Kyi, They froze bank accounts of the Open Society Foundation and their allies within Myanmar. There were, quote unquote, activist uprisings and protests, some of which got violent, some of which became violent between the military junta and the protesters. And all of the global governing bodies and their little NGOs and organizations around the world weighed in to say all of this was an atrocity. Myanmar had been building toward our democracy for a decade. All the progress has been ruined. The military junta is unjustified in deposing the fraudulently elected leader. And now they are imprisoning political opponents and Civilian protesters, always peaceful, always peaceful protesters. And in the globalists and the global state media's telling, all of this is very bad, totally unjustified, and maybe the world needs to get involved. So this report came out yesterday. This is from the Associated Press reprinted at NPR. NPR. Myanmar carries out its first executions in decades, including democracy activists. Myanmar's government announced Monday and obviously time change. It had carried out its first executions in decades, hanging a former National League for Democracy lawmaker, a democracy activist and two men accused of violence after the country's takeover by the military last year. The executions, detailed in the state-run Mirror Daily newspaper, were carried out despite worldwide pleas for clemency for the four political prisoners, including from United Nations experts and Cambodia, which holds the rotating chairmanship of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. Now, it's interesting that NPR is printing this article and making sure to note that the Mirror Daily is Myanmar's state-run newspaper, NPR is America's state-run news outlet. The four were executed in accordance with legal procedures for directing and organizing violent and inhuman accomplice acts of terrorist killings, the newspaper reported. It did not say when the executions were carried out. The military government issued a brief statement confirming the report while the prison where the men had been held and the prison department refused comment. Ong Myo Min, human rights minister for the National Unity Government, a shadow civilian administration established outside Myanmar after the military seized power in February 2021, rejected the allegations the men were involved in violence. So they have a shadow government being run from outside Myanmar. And according to that shadow government, these men were not involved in any way in the violence. Punishing them with death is a way to rule the public through fear, he told the Associated Press. Among those executed was Fyo Zeya Thaw, a former lawmaker from ousted leader Aung San Suu Kyi's party, also known as Mong Kya, who was convicted in January by a closed military court of offenses involving explosives, bombings, and financing terrorism. His wife, Tazin Nyunt Ong, told the AP she had not been informed his execution had been carried out. I am still trying to confirm it myself, she said. The 41-year-old had been arrested last November based on information from people detained for shooting security personnel. State media said at the time, he was also accused of being a key figure in a network that carried out what the military described as terrorist attacks in Yangon, the country's biggest city. Fio Zayathaw had been a hip-hop musician before becoming a member of the Generation Wave political movement formed in 2007. He was jailed in 2008 under a previous military government after being accused of illegal association and possession of foreign currency. Also executed was Kyo Min Yu, a 53-year-old democracy activist better known as Ko Jimmy, for violating the counterterrorism law. Kyo Min Yu was one of the leaders of the 88 Generation Students Group, Veterans of a failed 1988 popular uprising against military rule. He already had spent more than a dozen years behind bars for political activism before his arrest in Yangon last October. He had been put on a wanted list for social media postings that allegedly incited unrest, and state media said he was accused of terrorist acts, including mine attacks, and of heading a group called Moonlight Operation to carry out urban guerrilla attacks. The other two men, Pla Myo Ong and Ong Thura Zaw were convicted of torturing and killing a woman in March 2021 whom they believed was a military informer. Elaine Pearson, acting Asia director of Human Rights Watch, and of course, Human Rights Watch is one of the UN partners, one of the aspects of global governance. They always weigh in on these sorts of things. They're always protecting the human rights of. Everyone across the world, so long as it enhances the global communist agenda, they don't care so much about human rights when the citizens of the world are being censored by their governments in coordination with the big tech companies. But hey, they, they can't, they can't address those kinds of things. I mean, the big tech companies, well, they're private companies. And even when they're censoring people at the direct command of the government, Overtly violating people's human rights, well, at least they're violating human rights on behalf of the global communist order. So it turns out they're actually not violating human rights at all. So stealing an election on behalf of someone who is an ally of the Clintons and Obamas and George Soros is okay. But a military deposing that fraudulently elected leader is totally unjust and politically motivated. The junta's barbarity and callous disregard for human life aims to chill the anti-coup protest movement, she said, following the announcement of the executions. You got that? So the military deposing the fraudulently elected leader an Obama Clinton Soros ally, that's the coup. And if you're fighting back against that, if you are on the side of the Obamas and Clintons and Soros, then you're one of the good guys involved in the anti-coup movement. It's just a protest movement. You see Thomas Andrews, an independent UN appointed expert on human rights who had condemned the decision to go ahead with the executions when they were announced in June, called for a strong international response. I am outraged and devastated at the news of the junta's execution of Myanmar patriots and champions of human rights and decency, he said in a statement. These individuals were tried, convicted and sentenced by a military tribunal without the right of appeal and reportedly without legal counsel in violation of international human rights law. And it's interesting that they say reportedly without legal counsel makes it sound like they don't know. Now, are military tribunals automatically bad? No, of course not. Particularly if all the courts of the land, the entire judicial system, the law enforcement system has been infiltrated by people aligned with the global communist order with the Obamas, with the Clintons, with George Soros. Military tribunals may, in fact, be necessary in that situation. And we may well see them as necessary in this country in the not-so-distant future. Myanmar's foreign ministry had rejected the wave of criticism that followed its announcement in June, declaring that Myanmar's judicial system is fair and that Fyo Thaw and Kyo Min Yu Were proven to be masterminds of orchestrating full scale terrorist attacks against innocent civilians to instill fear and disrupt peace and stability. Now, depending on scale, you could certainly, certainly describe what we saw in 2020 in this country in those terms. Black Lives Matter and Antifa launched violent attacks across the country and did it night in and night out. We were told they were mostly peaceful. But we know they were not mostly peaceful. We know that they were meant to instill fear among the public and disrupt peace and stability, which is exactly what they did. They killed at least 50 people. Military spokesperson Major General Zaw Min Toon said on live television last month, he said the decision to hang all four prisoners conformed with the rule of law and the purpose was to prevent similar incidents in the future. The military seizure of power from Suu Kyi's elected government triggered peaceful protests that soon escalated to armed resistance and then to widespread fighting that some U.N. experts characterize as a civil war. Oh, the U.N. has characterized it as a civil war, not officially, just some U.N. experts. Maybe later they'll officially announce that it's a civil war, and if there's a civil war in Myanmar... The U.N. can decide, hey, maybe it's time for a peacekeeping mission to Myanmar. Let's send in the blue helmets and have them fight against the military junta. Now, I'm not saying that's happening or will happen, but I am saying that the narrative groundwork for that is being laid. Some resistance groups have engaged in assassinations, drive-by shootings and bombings in urban areas. Mainstream opposition organizations generally disavow such activities while supporting armed resistance in rural areas that are more often subject to brutal military attacks. According to Myanmar law, executions must be approved by the head of the government. The last judicial execution to be carried out in Myanmar is generally believed to have been of another political offender, student leader Saleh Tin Mong U, in 1976 under a previous military government led by dictator Ne Wen. In 2014, the sentences of prisoners on death row were commuted to life imprisonment, but several dozen convicts received death sentences between then and last year's takeover. The Assistance Association for Political Prisoners, a non-governmental organization, NGO, that tracks killing and arrests, said Friday that 2,114 civilians have been killed by security forces since the military takeover. It said 115 other people have been sentenced to death. Now, CNN, at the end of their article, had an extra little tidbit that this article did not have. That same woman, Elaine Pearson from Human Rights Watch, said European Union member states, the United States and other governments should show the junta that there will be a reckoning for its crimes. And that should clearly be seen as a call for the global governing bodies to do something about this situation. So the use of the George Soros election fraud apparatus, more commonly known as our democracy. No problem with that. The military deposing the fraudulent leader. Well, that might cause a war. And of course, I've discussed on this podcast a very similar situation on all levels happening in Burkina Faso, where their military has also deposed the fraudulently elected leader. And it's possible that we may well reach that point here at some time in the future, although we can all hope that it doesn't get to that level. Now, I was going back and forth with my friend CanCon last night because he broke this story about local Michigan news websites that were affiliates of the Associated Press posting election results to the Michigan primaries. On their website, the Michigan primary does not happen until next Tuesday, August 2nd. But you could go on their website to their main drop down menu, click on election results and get their display of results. The results were very realistic and they had the establishment candidates winning. I didn't see one that wasn't, but there might have been one. I didn't research every single one of them. And the response that's been given is that they were testing their systems. Well, if they were testing their systems, why didn't they just use random names and random numbers? They used the real candidates and they presented it with real ish results. So the question is, what systems were they testing? They weren't just testing the website's ability to display this stuff. They were probably testing something that involves the transfer of results from the precinct or the counting center to an organization like Edison that tabulates and reports these results and the transfer of that to these websites. It does seem like an awfully strange thing that needs testing and they're doing it in a very strange way. Now Ken going to stay On top of this, and he and I will be in discussion. So if anything else comes out about this, I'll certainly let you know. But we were in the middle of this text conversation and he hits me with the Myanmar article because he knows I pay attention to Myanmar. And I was telling him, yeah, man, like you can find this almost everywhere you look. Just choose a country. Choose any country and we can look and see if they have in their recent history a disputed election based on claims of fraud. You can do this almost anywhere. He chose Angola initially. I was like, dude, I already did Angola. I talked about it on the podcast a few weeks ago. Angola is a yes. And he lists Botswana. I use Jabiru to search. That is what I always use. It's less restricted. It seems to be less restricted. We are in an open space here. You can't entirely trust everything We know Google's bad. We know DuckDuckGo's bad. There's some reason to believe Quant is not what it was. So this is what I use, virtualmirage.org. And what I do is simply type in the name of the country, Botswana, and then claims election fraud and just see what comes up. And you will find almost in every case I've ever tried. That there is a disputed election within the last few years. If you find that, you can begin to read articles about that disputed election. It will be virtually the same narrative about the election each and every time. It'll involve either activist groups causing civil unrest or terrorist groups causing civil unrest. There are often immigration problems involved. And then when you explore those stories, it is not very hard To get right back to the global bodies, they will be quoting members of the same global bodies in all of these different articles. They will say that there's no evidence or baseless claims. They will deny all claims of election fraud, and then they will describe the different parties in similar terms that they use to describe the different factions within the United States. And you begin to see these same patterns emerge, these same storylines emerge in country after country after country after country. It's a direct parallel to what's happening here. Of course, we are in the U.S. We are more familiar with this. We are more familiar with the general political landscape than we are in countries around the world. And obviously, the U.S. is a bigger and more prominent nation. So the scale of all this is different. But we can see similar things happening. And these militaries are deposing these fraudulent leaders. So it certainly is possible. And that's something that we should at least be mindful of and perhaps even hopeful about. Now, Axios has been doing a significant amount of reporting specifically by Jonathan Swan, who is just a dyed in the wool commie and tried and failed to make Donald Trump look like a fool With his coronavirus questions and other questions leading up to the election in 2020, you might remember that interview where Jonathan Swan kept repeating the central narrative to Trump and Trump was responding with the actual information. But because the media is what it is and the media's audience are who they are, all of them freaked out thinking that Donald Trump was spreading dangerous misinformation even though Donald Trump was dead on accurate in his responses about the data. Now, I'm going to get to that swan stuff in just a second. But before that, Josh Hour in Axios has an article with the headline Trump's summer slump. And the picture is a red hat that looks like a MAGA hat, but it says nope across it. You got that? The country's just rejecting Donald Trump. July and August are likely to mark former President Trump's worst back-to-back months since he left office. (laughs) That's incredible. Oh, is his second term of his presidency not going as well as it was a couple of months ago? Is that what you're saying, Axios? What's happening? This is just the most ridiculous rendition of the central narrative ever, but since they're going to go for this, let's talk about it. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is showing the most potential 2024 strength yet, leading or tied in state polling from New Hampshire, Michigan, and Florida. The House January 6th hearings have delivered more drama and revelations than expected. Oh, yes, they're doing so well. No one's watching them. And all of the evidence that's being revealed is conclusively disproven within 24 hours over and over again. But oh, yeah, they are totally swaying public opinion. Trump's favorite newspaper, The New York Post, editorialized Friday that Trump is unworthy to be president again. Another Rupert Murdoch paper, The Wall Street Journal, opined the same day that Trump utterly failed his January 6th character test. Yes, that was how the editorial board of two of Rupert Murdoch's newspapers responded to the primetime finale of this half of the season of the January 6th television show. Apparently, they're going to make a comeback in September where they'll have all new, totally damning information about what Donald Trump did on January 6th. Yeah, I mean, sure, he approved the National Guard being called in to protect the Capitol two days prior to January 6th. But Nancy Pelosi decided that was no good. And she called it off for optics. Donald Trump was really just playing 27-dimensional chess and tricking Nancy Pelosi into doing that. He actually wanted Nancy Pelosi not to approve the National Guard. What a genius. I mean, in a normal world, you would see him approving the deployment of 10 or 20,000 National Guard troops as a sign that Donald Trump was not trying to stage an armed insurrection. But hey, these are not smart or honest people we're dealing with. There's a bleak outlook for many of Trump's candidates on the busy August primary slate. Oh, yes, I'm sure he's so worried about the candidates and not about the election fraud that is continuing to happen in every single race. Trump has lavished political capital on 10 allies in August primaries who promote election conspiracy theories while seeking revenge on several House Republicans who voted for his impeachment. Polls show Trump's number one target, Liz Cheney, vice chair of the House January 6th committee hearings, poised to lose. But Trump's MAGA aligned activists in other races are struggling. You got that? So the one that the mainstream media and Democrats are promoting, Geraldo is even saying Liz Cheney should be president in 2024. The most prominent one is getting utterly crushed. But the ones you don't hear about that much, they're the ones who are really struggling so far in twenty twenty two. Trump's endorsement record is mixed in competitive gubernatorial and congressional primaries, far from the Midas touch in primaries he showcased as president. You got that? So they're only counting the ones that they deem to be competitive. That's the operative word right there. His record overall is unbelievable. He's he's something like, I don't know exactly what it is now, but a few weeks ago it was something like, 110 to 8. The Arizona governor's race is shaping up as the biggest test of whether the party establishment can win a fight against Trump. Former Vice President Mike Pence, snubbing his former boss, endorsed real estate developer Karen Taylor Robson in the Arizona governor's primary. Pence held a rally for her Friday, the same day as Trump's Arizona rally with another Republican challenger, former TV news anchor Carrie Lake, one of the most outspoken amplifiers of Trump's false claims of election fraud. It's strange how they don't mention that there were thousands and thousands of people at Trump's rally and under 100 at Mike Pence's. But hey, they're just the same. And Karen Taylor Robson is a real estate developer, not someone who married a billionaire 35 years her elder and has consistently donated to Democrats right up to this year. That's not it. They don't bother telling you that. This is axios. It's all about the framing, you see. It's about what you take away, not the information they actually give you. They can't just go around telling you all the important details or you wouldn't come to the right conclusions. And if you don't come to the right conclusions, that means that what you were told was disinformation or that you're just inventing things. You're a conspiracy theorist. Only two Trump endorsed candidates in contested primaries are clear favorites. In Wyoming, a July poll found attorney Harriet Hageman leading Cheney by 22 points. And it's much higher than that in other polls, but they choose the one they choose. For U.S. Senate in Arizona, venture capitalist Blake Masters is ahead in the polls. A number of Trump's candidates are on the defensive, everywhere else. Oh, a number everywhere else. Alaska's ranked choice voting system is making it difficult for Trump endorsed Sarah Palin running for Alaska's vacant house seat to get traction. Well, hey, why don't you tell us about the race between Kelly Shabaka and Lisa Murkowski? Huh? They just don't mention it. They're talking about Alaska. They just want to let you know that they're going to make sure Sarah Palin loses. Representatives Jamie Herrera Butler and Dan Newhouse benefit from Washington State's all party primary system, in which Democrats could end up boosting the fortunes of the two anti Trump Republicans. Oh, so the proof that Trump is having a terrible two months and his candidates and the whole MAGA thing in general are just collapsing in front of our eyes is that Democrats might help two Republicans beat. MAGA candidates in an open primary. Got it. Very convincing Axios. And now we get to the really amazing part. Reality check. Trump drew big crowds in Arizona on Friday and Florida on Saturday. Here's another reality check that they don't mention. At the Turning Point USA event that Trump spoke at on Saturday, and this is an event for young conservatives It's Zoomers and millennials participating in the straw poll. Trump beat DeSantis four to one. He had almost 80% of the vote in the straw poll that asked who the 2024 candidate should be. DeSantis was under 20%. So Trump's just under 80. DeSantis just under 20 in Florida. But now that that reality check is over, let's get back to Axios's bottom line. If Trump continues to struggle, he could find himself with a middling record in the most consequential primary races, just as he wants to project strength for 2024. Oh, yes. If he gets middling results, everybody's just going to give up on him and not focus on the fact that those middling results were achieved through election fraud like they just were in Georgia. All of this is a joke. They're simply denying reality and they are relying on obviously fraudulent election outcomes to do so. Now, let's get to the Jonathan Swan stuff. So he's had this series of pieces about what Donald Trump wants to do in his second term as president, which they continue to say will be in 2025, but maybe sooner. And they're talking about the disassembling of the administrative state, taking all of it right down to the bottom and removing the federal bureaucracies just in full. And it's focused around something called Section F, which allows the president to reassign the roles of federal employees and change their classifications such that the president can fire them at will, which is How the government should work, by the way, we already have literally thousands of political appointees that turn over based on the administration. But the rest of the federal bureaucracy always remains in place, which is what allows the administrative state to grow. Now, people who benefit from the administrative state, the deep state, want to keep all of that in place. So they reframe things. Donald Trump wants to fill his government with loyalists. Well, okay. every uniparty administration already has a government of essentially loyalists. They may not be loyalists to the particular president. They are loyalists to the federal bureaucracy and the global agenda, which the federal bureaucracy serves. Firing federal government employees is not some dictatorial takeover. It's what's absolutely needed in this country. And combining that with what we saw in the West Virginia versus EPA decision from the Supreme Court a few weeks ago, we're getting to the point where that is legitimately possible. We need to get rid of many of these departments just in full because they shouldn't exist and there's at least some valid constitutional questions about whether their existence is constitutional in the first place. So here's Jonathan Swan on CNN. We have some fantastic reporting that aims to look at that in very uh, exact detail. And part of it centers around a lot of it centers around an executive order he put in place. Can you tell us about this? He put this in place. It was rescinded by the Biden mm. administration. It kind of flew under the radar, but this is a crucial element of what it might look like if he re- if he is elected again.
2: Yeah. So this is a two part series that we launched on Axios um, on uh, Friday and Saturday, and I've been working on this for you know, more than three months, basically piecing together. All these different aspects of what is effectively an administration in waiting for Trump for 2025. There's a lot more going on behind the scenes, um, than have been publicly, uh, reported. And at the heart of all of this, um, is a legal instrument. Um, it's an executive order called schedule that they call schedule F and if if your viewers haven't heard of Schedule F or hadn't heard of it before the stories, that's for good reason because it was developed in strict secrecy for most of the Trump administration, at least for the last uh, two years of it, and it was only finally issued. The Trump only signed it into law um, 13 days before the presidential election in 2020, and you know when when you put out some anodyne sounding order called Schedule F amid the craziest election in American history you know, you could be forgiven for not paying attention to it. But it's actually profound what it does. It allows um, cabinet agencies to reclassify tens of thousands of career civil servants who have currently under law and have for decades very strong employment protections because the idea is that these career civil servants, nonpartisan, continue from one administration to the next, regardless of the party of the president in power. Trump wants to fire tens of thousands, potentially, at least thousands of these people that he calls pejoratively the deep state. And what this order allows him to do is to reclassify them as a new employment category called Schedule F. They They immediately lose almost all of their employment protections and can be easily fired and replaced. So that's happening there. As you can imagine, there'll be legal challenges to this. And but I'll tell you, Trump's advisers like their chances in a in a court system now dominated by conservatives at the highest level. And because of that, there are some Democrats who've been following this issue very carefully and who are who are quite alarmed about it and have been trying to take steps to preemptively prevent a future president from doing this so gerald connolly jerry connolly um represented from virginia who heads uh, the committee the subcommittee who oversees the federal civil service he's attached an amendment to the annual defense bill to try and prevent this from happening republicans want to block it in the senate but i will say even if they succeed democrats in somehow getting something into law to prevent schedule f Trump really wants to attack the intelligence community and the national security apparatus and basically purge the, these agencies, the CIA, the FBI, etc. They don't have the same civil service protections as a lot of the other agencies do. So even if they don't get civil uh, a Schedule F, a president with the will to do what Trump wants to do and has told his advisors he wants to do could still do quite a significant purge um, without it.
0: Well, that makes it sound like Trump's official second term is going to be absolutely awesome. What sort of American at this point doesn't want to see that happen? Also, Democrats are freaking out about it. Now, why is that? He went over the fact that these are all nonpartisan bureaucrats. They're just totally apolitical civil servants, as described by Jonathan Swan. Well, if that's true, then why are the Democrats so upset? The Democrats just would have to win another election and then they could replace all the Trump people with their own people again. What's so wrong with that? The government should be much smaller. If we need career people in these positions, then these bureaucracies and these agencies are doing far too much. What Trump wants to avoid is consistently being undermined by the unelected. These bureaucrats that get appointed by people with different political philosophies with Donald Trump, these people undermine the America First agenda and they come with employment protections, which means that the president elected by the people has to be subject to being undermined by federal agency bureaucrats. These people know what's coming and they sound horrified. And I think we can all be pretty happy about that. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen,